This is the Kavnis HR Podcast, and we want you to be great every day. Join us as we transform the human resources outsourcing industry while we talk to small business owners, founders, and people in tech, startup, and HR spaces. Now, please welcome your host, Jason Kavnis. Hello, and welcome to the Kavnis HR Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Kavnis. Our guest today is Kevin Goldsmith. Kevin, are you ready to be great today? I am. Thank you for asking. Kevin is a chief technology officer at Avvo in Seattle, overseeing all the development, data, DevOps, and IT teams. Previously, he was a vice president of engineering consumer at Spotify in Stockholm, Sweden, leading the development of the product and streaming services. Kevin was also at Adobe Systems for nine years, where he was a director of engineering leading the Adobe Revel product group and the Adobe Image Foundation group. He spent eight years at Microsoft in the Windows and research teams. He has also worked at Silicon Graphics, Colossal, Pictures, IBM. Kevin, you have some great jobs so far, and you're doing some great things. What are you? What's going on in the life of Kevin Goldsmith right now? Well, I've been uh, I've been at Avo now for about 18 months, and just really focused on you know on our mission and delivering on our mission, which is helping people get support for their legal problems through software. And you know, for me, focusing on just continuing to build the company and build the teams and create good work environment for the people that are here. Now, I could be wrong, but didn't Avo have like a really great recruiting event like maybe a year ago where they combined recruiting with, I think it was Pokemon and had some kind of, it was like really out of the box thinking. And I was like, man, I really like this right here. Yeah, our recruiting team is is absolutely awesome. And they had the idea of creating a Pokemon gym a few blocks away from the office at, uh, at a Whole Foods during the lunchtime. And we're right in the middle of, you know, our office is right in the middle of where Amazon is and a bunch of other tech startups. So it was it was just a genius move. Uh, yeah, and it worked out really well. Now, before Apple, you was at Spotify in Sweden, yeah. How did that work for you? Were you, were you recruited by Avvo? Were you just ready to come back to the States? How did that whole thing work out for you? I was at the point at Spotify where I felt like uh, I'd learned what I, I needed to learn there and I was ready to move on. We had, uh, for family reasons, we had a need to come back to the U.S. And so we lived in Seattle before we moved to Sweden. Uh, my wife's family is from here, so there was a strong desire to return. And I was just absolutely lucky in, as I started my search, I was, I hit uh, Avo just as they were at the right time in their search. And so it was just kismet. Okay, that's great. So when you compare people who graduate from a traditional four-year college in, in computer science versus somebody from a code academy, from your, from how are they compared? Are they with the same breadth of knowledge? Or are they different? How do you compare? What's your opinion on that? You know, the thing about the, the coding academies, and we have really good relationships with uh, two of the coding academies here in Seattle, um, Code Fellows and the Ada Developers Academy, and we've hired several people from, from both those programs. I wouldn't say... I, I wouldn't say that they're the same. A four-year CS degree and a seven-month intensive boot camp are not going to provide you the exact same level of education. There's roles, and certainly, you know, in the Windows team and Microsoft, in some of the really GPU-intensive stuff I was doing at Adobe, that requires a bit more depth than a coding academy could provide. But for a lot of the work in the industry, you don't really need that level of depth. There's lots of people building commercial software who do not have a four-year CS degree and can do it just well, uh, do it great. So I think there's a very wide variety of roles where coding academy education, along with somebody who's very passionate and 
bright can absolutely do the work and come in at an entry level and be able to develop, continue to develop their skills and be awesome in the industry. I think there's a class of jobs, but that's actually a fairly small class relative to the industry as a whole where you actually do need a four-year degree. So it's, it's, it's both. It's neither one nor the other. Okay. So Kevin, this, there was a conversation on LinkedIn a couple of months ago, basically it was like a bunch of, uh, uh, people in school about to graduate software development degree, Cone Academies, and the and the base of the conversation was, you know, how do we get a job? Because we have no job experience. Most of these open entry positions are saying like two, three years experience. While we don't have that, and what would you advise to be to these to these candidates? So I think that for folks coming in, um, folks who want are looking to join the industry, whether you're coming from a four year degree program or a boot camp program, you know, the fact of the matter is there's a like companies cannot hire in any way, shape, or form the numbers of de- developers that they're looking for. And everybody, or not everybody, but a large number of companies are completely unrealistic about the qualifications that they're looking for from entry-level folks. I would focus more on the smaller companies, the startups, the companies that are probably more ready to take on uh, developer help and are not necessarily able to attract those several year out of school kind of people and get them to take a chance on you. I would also make sure that you have good visibility in the community, come to meetups, come to uh, recruiting events, get known by the recruiters, really good recruiters, even if they don't have a role for you at their company right now, they will either Talk to a friend at another company potentially and you weren't right for them right now, but you might be ready for somebody else. Or when they get, if they really like you, when they have a position open, they'll give you a call. So definitely find ways to meet recruiters face-to-face. We host a ton of meetups. Uh, other companies host meetups. We, are, we do that because we're continually looking for more developers. And I can tell you, you know, I've just seen amazing things come from having that bond either with a, an employee at the company or a recruiter where it may not lead to a job immediately, but it'll lead to a job eventually. What would you tell a kid who says this? He says, well, I understand you're talking about startups, but most startups can't pay me your money. I have all these student loans I got to pay off. So I really, I can't really go the startup route. What would you talk to them? How would you advise them? So I think your, your best option still, if you're, if you haven't had much luck, going to the Microsofts, the uh, Googles, right? A lot of them are much more looking at four-year degree only or four-year degree from known schools. They aren't normally willing to take the time to look at somebody coming from a less well-known school or a non-traditional background, unless it's through like a specific program that they've set up. Your best bet is still going to be with those smaller companies. You're still going to get paid probably more than you would make not working. It may not be as much as you'd hope to make, but you're going to get some real life job experience. And that's going to be make that's going to make it a lot easier for you to find the second job or the third job. And the if the alternative is driving Uber or something, that's not going to help you get a job in the industry either. 
Kevin, I'm probably misquoting this next step, but I remember reading here somewhere that every year there's a million new tech jobs in the United States, but only 6,000, like 600,000 actually get filled. So each year that 400,000 keeps on carrying and carrying over. Is that a true stat or am I just making this up? That stat seems a little high to me. That might be there. That might be currently there's a million open and six, you know, that, that might be a number, but I have that number seems quite high to me if that would be a yearly thing because of the millions of positions open right but is there like a job deficit in the tech industry where oh yeah oh yeah absolutely i i talked to uh i talked to my peers at other companies uh you've got you know companies like amazon or facebook or google hiring in the thousands of engineers a year i talk to other startups our size or smaller that are hiring you know dozens a year we're hiring on the order of dozens a year you know these people all have to come from somewhere. Everybody's growing, not that many companies. You know, there are certainly are companies that are shrinking, but not at that rate. And we are frankly not graduating. So if we were only looking at four-year programs, we are not graduating nearly enough people yes. uh, in order to satisfy the need in the industry. Now, for there's a lot of startup founders who so have really no tech background, or they're, I guess because not tech. What advice do you give these people you know, try to, to try to find either find tech talent or to for that part, you know, evaluate that tech talent. What about you give for them? Yeah, so I, I think the best thing you can do as a non-technical founder of a tech startup or a tech, a primarily tech startup, I think you, finding a technical co-founder is going to be absolutely critical. If your business is differentiated from other businesses by the quality of your software, it, you can't you 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 need to find a technical co-founder who knows what they're doing and hopefully has some level of experience hiring and growing a team and building things otherwise you're just going to be at the mercy of a lot of people you're going like I've seen companies try and outsource stuff from the beginning the problem is then you you don't really uh, you don't really have true ownership over your IP and the quality investment isn't necessarily there you need to find that co-founder Kevin, let's suppose there's a software developer out there somewhere and they want to work for you. How do they yeah. get your attention? How does that work? What, what, what do they need to do? It's, I always say this and it's always a danger. I always worry that it's a dangerous thing for me to say, but folks reach out to me. I've had folks reach out to me uh, on LinkedIn. I've had folks reach out to me on Twitter, occasionally email. I try not to have my email address too public, but if you can read, if you reach out to me and you have a question or you're looking for mentoring on something, I'm almost always, unless I'm really snowed under, I'm almost always going to be willing to engage with you and talk to you and give you advice. I, I love doing that. I love helping out uh, folks who are, who are new to the industry or looking for a role or whatever. If you just contact me and say, hey, I'd like a job. Here's my resume. That's probably almost never going to go over well with me. If you want to get my attention, usually the best way to do that is to engage me on something that you're interested in that I can help you with or that you have a question around or just ask a question about things. Um, I like people who want to talk about things. I don't necessarily like people who are just scattered. I feel like they're just mailing their resume to a thousand people. So Kevin, for your current job, can you break down like what percent you spend on like recruiting hiring, what percent you spend on like mentoring people, what percent you spend on, you know, actual technical stuff? 
So these days, because we're in the middle of a right now, we're we're hiring. We're in the middle of a hiring push right now, and and really trying to hire up. I'm probably spending about a third of my time just recruiting either for direct reports for me or direct reports for one of my peers. For normally, that would be maybe a, a little bit smaller. I might step in for a candidate in my, that somebody, a manager that works for me is hiring. But not right now, it's, it's a lot heavier around recruiting. So I'm spending maybe about a third of my time recruiting, a third of my time developing and mentoring or, and maybe about a third focusing on technology. Normal steady state, it'd probably be a bit closer to maybe 60, 70% mentoring and developing and maybe about 30% technology. So as a CTO, how much do you still get to actually go in there and code as much as you want to or is it more oversight for you right now? So at the size of a company we are, if I'm coding, I'm probably not doing the right thing, to be honest. So we're a fairly established company. We're a mid-sized company. A CTO in my role, my primary my primary team is the senior leadership team. I'm focused on tech strategy. I'm focused on tech ex- execution. I've got a large organization to support and develop. So if I'm coding, it's going to be usually in the evenings for fun. If I'm coding on the product, I am absolutely putting my time in the wrong place. Kevin X, can you talk about a time you were successful in the past, what you learned from your success and what we can learn from the success you had in the past? Yeah, I think there was when I took over the Adobe Rebel product team. That was a team, when I joined that team, it was a prototype. It was something that was being worked on by a small group of really talented, really enthusiastic developers. They'd made something that had a lot of potential. Company was thinking this might be something we might want to turn into a real product. I had been running another team, another organization, uh, was ready to do something new. This seemed uh, like a good, good change for me within the company. And I think one of the biggest, I think that was easily one of my biggest successes. One of the things we did was I joined, we said, no, we're really going to take this product to market. We embraced a lean, lean startup type methodology. We put a, I put in a six month timeline from where we were to shipping, laid claim to a launch opportunity. And we just worked through, did it in a really good way. We focused on how we can bring value to consumers. We cut down to an MVP. It was an incredibly aggressive timeline. We were adding people to the team while the whole process, we did it without working late night, a weekend until literally like the last week. We worked one weekend in the entire six month period, but we were able to release a product we were very proud of into the market and we're able to then iterate in the market with customers, grow it quickly. Um, and that's, you know, that's certainly something I was really proud of. And that taught me a lot. Uh, one, you know, I said I'd been, a, you know, as you said, I've been at Microsoft. You know, Microsoft, we would take a really aggressive deadlines, but we did it in a way that certainly when I worked there was not really great from a work-life balance perspective where, uh, you know, working on one of the products I worked on was Windows Media. And we worked, you know, we, what we used to call death march, we death marched on that product for six months. And that was, I mean, that was incredibly disruptive and damaging to people's lives. So then to take an entire brand new product and ship it in six months and do it without 
doing that to the employees, doing it in a great work-life balance way, I was just incredibly proud of. That's a great story. From an HR, I'd like to go back in time, like research, I mean, you know, when there's a death march, how those many people actually stayed and how many left? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, I think Microsoft, especially, and I'm talking about, it's been a long time since I worked at Microsoft. So I don't, it, I, I can't, uh, I've heard that it isn't this way anymore, but certainly in the 90s, uh, Microsoft very much liked to hire people straight out of college, right? People who were used to working, didn't know what it was, didn't have any expectations about work-life balance, and then just train them that this is what you do. I had worked other places before I came to Microsoft, and and so I had different expectations. And so for me, that was probably the end of my tour at Microsoft was just having to work that hard and feeling that it wasn't really appreciated, right? It was just expected and thinking that, oh, well, the law, if I just keep doing this, I'm just going to have, this will just be what it is. I will just be doing this all the time. And I just didn't want that from my life, I guess, which is why I left. I don't know. There's a lot of people who just embrace that lifestyle. It was just not for me. Kevin, next, talk about a time you failed in the past, what you learned and where you can learn from this time in your past. So at Spotify, actually, I talk about, I have a talk I give about failure. And one of the examples I give was a project I worked on at Spotify, but it was essentially a big feature push that Spotify had around trying to find the right music for every moment of your day. So it included a whole bunch of features basically to make Spotify something that you would always, uh, always want to go to, whether it's a lunch break or whatever. It included features that are in the product now, um, like video, podcasts, this thing called Spotify Now, which was a, a UI that would sort of kind of emulate a radio and give you things. This was something that we did not in the way we liked to do product development. Spotify was extra, exceptionally good at doing things with customers, not taking these big bets in isolation, but actually working in with customers, seeing their reaction to features and iterating in the market. Because we were trying to do this uh, as a big kind of release with a lot of features simultaneously that we wanted a big press event around, we didn't do that this time. We sort of went against our own nature. And I was the head of technology, or I was head of the engineering effort. So this was a massive project, hundreds of developers, you know, again, around actually, I think around a six-month timeline to ship. And we released it, and it did not do well. We'd hoped we'd, that we were going to have a significant increase in user retention. And in fact, actually, when we finally released it, we had a decrease in user retention. And Spotify would only roll things out to a small number of consumers to test it when it was launched. So luckily, we didn't unleash this on our entire user base because it actually would have really hurt the company. Uh, but then we had to spend, because we'd done, things, done something in a way that was so antithetical to the way we worked, we had a big failure. We liked having small failures. Instead, we had a big failure and we had to research what happened and how this had happened and how to fix it. And that took many months because we weren't used to failing big. We were used to failing small. And so in the end, we were able to figure it out. Those features are, all those features are in the products, stuff like Spotify running, Spotify party. Those are all in the product. Those are all successful. Successful now. The main, uh, one of the big features that Spotify now is gone. Uh, that was a big part of it. But from that, you know, what I'd learned was just about this idea where we'd gone wrong was 
trying to do something too big. I love the idea of having lots of small failures and being able to learn discrete lessons from each and not having any of them be so big that they're really going to hurt your company. And Spotify was exceptionally good at that. And where we'd gone wrong is we tried to not do that. We tried to be uh, somebody who we weren't. And from there, though, that's carried certainly into what we're doing at Avo, where we're much more iterative. We try things out with our users. We learn from our mistakes. And we don't make the mistake of betting the company on something without actually having good data. Around. Kevin, can you talk about someone who helped you in the, who has helped you out in the past and how they helped you? I had, uh, I've been really lucky to have just over, over my career, just either great managers that I've learned from or great peers who've taught me a lot. One of the, my uh, favorite pieces of advice I, or some of the, some of the advice I quote to other people when I'm mentoring them came from uh, my boss at Adobe. Fritz Haberman. And what I remember is I was running this team, the Image Foundation team, and I had been a developer and moved into management. And now the team was getting bigger and bigger, but I didn't want to let go of sort of my, that coding was such a huge part of my identity. And that connection to the product was so important to me that I just did not want to give up doing that. And at a certain point, it was becoming, but it wasn't my job anymore. And I just didn't want to give it up because it was so close to who I thought I was. And Adobe has this thing where they have a end of year shutdown, just shut down the company between Christmas and, and, and New Year's so that everybody takes vacation that week. And if you didn't want to, if you had to work that week, you needed VP approval to work. And I had to get VP approval because I owned features in the product and they were all late. And so I had to work that week and I had to get permission. And Fritz said to me, well, you know, who's the worst developer on your team? And I started thinking about it. I'm like, hmm, I'm not really sure. And he said, no, it's you. You're the worst developer on your team because you're always late. You're always missing deadlines because it's not your job anymore. And he, and that was super important for me because I think at that point I was still, my identity was still so tied into being a developer and being the most senior technical person on the team. And right there is where I realized, you know, that's not my job anymore. And it's not what's better for my team is for me to actually focus on being a better manager and being a better people leader. And the team will get much more benefit from that than from me just coding a feature. And so that was, you know, and certainly that's guided a lot of my development since. Kevin, do you have a book that you can recommend to our listeners? Yeah. So here at Avo, I started a training program for our managers. And part of that, we have a book club um, where we read a book every month. The, the, book, the last book we read it was quite good. It's called Difficult Conversations by Douglas Stone, Bruce Patton, and Sheila Heen. I'd read that book in the past and I, I liked it, but I was actually surprised how useful that book has been for the managers in my organization. I've been in meetings where they're, you can see them using some of the tools from that book. It was a, it's been really beneficial for us. That's great that you're actually taking the time to mentor your people. I know a lot of companies don't do that. That's really good. I really like that. Kevin, we'll come to the end of our talk. Can you provide any last advice to, you know, either people trying to get in tech or startup founders or people, you know, one level below you who want to be in your position? So I, there's a piece of advice I always give, and it's, it's something that 
when I came to this realization, uh, myself changed the way I changed everything for me, which was for a long time, I would just kind of skate by on gut feel or, you know, instincts. And at a certain point, I realized, and maybe it was just a, a sign of getting older and having more maturity, but how critical it was for me to be very much more intentional about what I do, both around my own development, how I do my job, moving from being reactive to being proactive to being strategic, not only in the things I do as part of my role, but just how I approach my role. And that's been uh, something that's really guided my own development has been incredibly useful for me. So that would be my piece of advice is understand why you're doing the things you're doing, understand why you're making the decisions you're making, and that will be incredibly valuable to you as you move forward in your career. He gives a lot of advice, really uh, great wisdom. I know it's going to pack a lot of people in a positive way. You give a lot of great career advice. To our listeners, thank you for your time as well, and remember to be great every day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Cadmus HR. For more exclusive content, as well as your free copy of HR Laws, be sure to visit CadmusHR.com or connect to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Cadmus HR or Jason Cadmus HR on Snapchat. Thanks again and be great every day.